Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Students Talk Security Series. My name is Maura Brennan, and I'm a current fellow with the Notre Dame International Security Certification Program. And today I am lucky enough to be speaking with Dr. Tom Farr. Dr. Farr currently serves as the president of the Religious Freedom Institute and has for years served our country at the intersection of two incredibly important battlefields, that of international security and that of religious freedom. After serving our nation also for 28 years in the U.S. Army and teaching at West Point and at the Air Force Academy, Dr. Farr was appointed the first director of the State Department's Office of International Religious Freedom. He then directed the Witherspoon Institute's International Religious Freedom Task Force, was on the Chicago World, Affair, World Affairs Council's Task Force on Religion and U.S. Foreign Policy, and served on the Secretary of State's IRF Working Group. From 2008 to 2018, Dr. Farr was Associate Professor of the Practice of, World, of Religion and World Affairs at Georgetown University's Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service, also directing the Religious Freedom Project at Georgetown's Berkeley Center. Dr. Farr is the leading expert in the inter interconnection between international religious freedom, human rights, and United States national security, and has many published works to prove it. Thank you so much for joining us here today, Dr. Farr. Thanks for having me, Maura. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Well, to begin the podcast, um, I was hoping that you could please possibly explain the argument that you lay out in your World of Faith and Freedom, your book, um, and in really all the work that you've done in your career as to why religious freedom must be promoted as a core objective of U.S. foreign policy for the betterment of U.S. national security. Well, thank you. Um... I wrote that book uh, after about five years after leaving the State Department, actually a little less than five years. I had been in the Office of International Religious Freedom, as you mentioned, and I had decided that this was really important for our country and we weren't doing it that well at the time. The book came out in 2008. Um, I had uh, been in the brand new Office of International Religious Freedom, which was created under President Clinton in the late 1990s. And uh, I was in the uh, office under President Clinton and then under President Bush, Bush II. So I had a chance to see how both political parties and both presidential administrations operated this. Uh, the State Department itself was resistant to the idea of incorporating religion into our foreign policy in any sense. Um, but as time went on, I saw how uh, potentially productive this, should, this could be for our country, uh, for human rights, for the rights of individuals and uh, communities, um, the right of religious freedom. <clears throat> and to get to your question, how could this benefit <clears throat> international security and American national security? And I began to see those intersections, ended up writing this book and going to Georgetown. And I taught it for, for about a dozen years there and then uh, became part of the Religious Freedom Institute where we are trying to implement this. So religious freedom is a human right. It belongs to every human being by virtue of their existence. It isn't granted by the state. I think that's very important to understand. It's there because we are created by God in his image and likeness. This is kind of the American understanding, but it's a good understanding because even if you don't believe in God, 
it's yours. It's not a question of whether you are uh, Christian or otherwise. It's a question of whether um, you're a human being. If you are, you have religious freedom. But the intersection with national security extends to when human beings do what is natural when they are religious and they join with others and they form religious communities, religious institutions. And these are the ones that throughout history have either created problems for national security, or if you like, have created solutions to national security. And that's really what the book is about, that if we were able to succeed in US foreign policy in advancing this around the world, we would not only help the individuals, uh, say in China, or you can pick so many examples, Nigeria, Russia, Ukraine, people who um, may be being persecuted because of their religious beliefs. Religious freedom can help solve that problem, can help stabilize those countries, and can therefore advance American interests. So in short, and we can get more deeply into this, to succeed in advancing religious freedom will help individuals to live out their lives, uh, to um, address their own uh, need to understand the fundamental religious questions. Why am I here? Did I get created by someone or something? Uh, these are individual questions of conscience. They're interior questions, but usually people wanna join with others. And that's where religious communities come from and again, that's where the intersection with American foreign policy comes in. So I'll say just finally, uh, as I said before, we weren't doing, in my view, a very good job of, of uh, turning this into action in American foreign policy. So that's why I wrote the book and that's what I've been doing ever since. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Farr. In, in kind of that same vein, um, kind of to hash out the, argument and kind of what it looks like for U.S. national security. You, in your book, um, refer to religious freedom as, quote, um, the first freedom. Could you please explain what this first freedom, A, means for human rights and why it is of the utmost importance for human rights and why it is the first freedom? And B, could you please explain um, why the promotion of human rights in this way in other countries is a determinant of United States national security? Um, religious freedom is the first freedom. And again, that's, that's an American phrase, but we're talking about American foreign policy, as I alluded to before, even though it, it kind of comes out of the notion of the Christian or the Judeo-Christian God, it applies to everybody. You don't have to believe in religion at all in order to be the beneficiary of this understanding. Human beings by their nature, even people that end up being atheists, which is pretty hard to do by the way, uh, to be absolutely convinced there is no God, but there, there are a few, uh, not as many as you might think, but people are entitled to those beliefs. Religious freedom means the right to ask and answer those questions. Is there is a God? Is there a God? Is there a some other force out there, if you like, that is responsible for my being here? If so, what is my responsibility to that? Is there a life after death? Why is there suffering? This kind of stuff. Human beings, by their nature, 
ask and seek the answers to these questions. They come out in different ways. That's why there's so many religions in the world. But to deny human beings the right to do that is to attack them at the core of what it means to be human. That's what human dignity means in this context. It's the right to be able to do this without being coerced by any human agent, especially governments with their extraordinary powers. So here we're talking about the individual right. It's the first freedom in this sense, our founders believe, because it is built into our nature. And so if you deprive someone of something that is so close to what it means to be human, uh, you're depriving them of the first freedom. Now, there are obviously other freedoms that are important to us as human beings, but this one, as far as I'm concerned, and I think as far as our founders were concerned, is first because all of the others stem from it. If we can't do this, we can't assemble with others. We don't have free speech. And by the way, notice that in the American First Amendment, we have first and foremost the right of religious free exercise and then comes free expression. So the founders saw these things as connected, but they put religious freedom first. So that's the individual first freedom. But they went further than that. When they said everyone in our country has the right to free exercise of religion, they were talking about Catholics and Baptists and Muslims and Hindus, individuals and communities. And they were encouraging them to be involved in our public life. That's what exercise means. It could mean, you know, singing in church or praying real hard. But what they meant by it was first those things, those are kind of individual private things, but they wanted religious communities to be involved in the uh, determination, the debate over our laws and public policies. They wanted religious people to be involved in Uh, making themselves and their communities virtuous. They really believe that virtue is an important part of, of a successful society. So here, first freedom means both individuals and communities within a society. And the real connection to um, international security and American national security is that insight. It isn't necessarily the wording of our First Amendment which is not in some sense exportable to everyone else, but the principle that every human being, doesn't matter where they are, who they are, what sex they are, what uh, opinions they have, everyone deserves this right not to be coerced. It's an immunity from coercion in matters of religion. And if they do believe in religion, to join with others of like mind and spirit, The founders believe if you get this right politically within society, this is what our First Amendment is about, uh, and allow everyone equally to do this, we call it free exercise equality at the Religious Freedom Institute, that society is going to be more stable. People in it are going to be more happy. That doesn't mean they're going to agree. We certainly don't have that in the United States and other countries don't have it either. But it is a way of regulating this powerful impulse that human beings have as individuals and have even more when they gather with others of like mind and spirit. So that is the thumbnail sketch of why this is so important to our country. When Congress passed the 1998 International Religious Freedom Act, 
signed by President Clinton. It said, thou shalt promote religious freedom as part of our foreign policy. Thou, thou shalt being the administration in charge and the State Department in charge. So that's how I got into this and why I really became convinced it was good for our country. We weren't doing it very well. We have improved, I think, since 2008 when I wrote the book, but we still have a ways to go. Well, thank you so much for that answer, Dr. Farr. And um, kind of in answering that question of the ways we have to go, what does this increased emphasis look like in the U.S. from a political, diplomatic, defense standpoint? Like, what are some exam examples of what increased incorporation of religious freedom in our foreign policy could look like? First, uh, the first thing to say is that we began to see within five to six years of the passage of this Religious Freedom Act in the late 1990s, we began to see in the early 21st century, the idea of religious freedom for the first time entering into our national security strategy, which is something that is put out by every administration, usually early within the first couple of years uh, of the new president coming in. And if they have a second term, you will see it again revised a bit. So under President Bush, uh, who was uh, first elected, I believe, in uh, the year 2000, if I got that right, it was in 2002. Uh, when he first came in, he had his national security apparatus to spend time figuring out what do we need to do to defend the United States. For the first time, we began to see this issue of well, not for the first time, we began to see the phrase religious freedom occurring as a national defense issue. It's kind of, it's kind of ambiguous at the time, but you have to start somewhere. You have to start with what is this thing, religious freedom? And it actually said this is good for our national security. That is to say, if we succeed in getting other nations to adopt religious freedom, be good for them. And therefore, it'll be good for our national security because it will be stabilizing for them. It's very general, as I said. Then it became a little more specific during the second Bush administration. But still, <clears throat> these are just words. Uh, it's one thing to say we need to have, you know, uh, 12 aircraft carriers in the Indian Ocean or whatever it is. We need to have this set of. Uh, ICBMs and so forth, that's concrete. We, we weren't then, we still aren't quite as concrete about what we're going to do with religious freedom, but it has become more and more concrete. And the reason is because religious persecution has increased around the world. Human beings have been fearfully tortured and imprisoned and terrible things have been done to them by governments and by private actors who say they are acting in the name of a particular religion, such as Islam, or Hinduism, or Buddhism, or Christianity. Here, for those who don't know what I'm talking about, in the late 1990s, you had Slobodan Milosevic, who was a Serbian Orthodox leader attacking Muslims in Serbia and Montenegro and, and uh, Albania, uh, on the basis of a religion. There were other factors here, ethnic and nationalistic factors, but religion had something to do with it. So I mentioned that and pause on that. So, you know, this isn't 
just Islamist terrorism. That is often the one that is talked about today. And it's a fierce problem, but we're having this problem pop up in so many countries. So my point is religious persecution is destabilizing. When uh, ISIS went into uh, Iraq, when Al-Qaeda attacked the United States, what had we to do? We had to send our troops. We had to send our young men and women to die, to fight. That's a national security problem for the United States. So the point, the question that was raised then was, what can religious freedom do to prevent these things? And once they've happened, is there anything religious freedom can do to mitigate the problem? So I'll just give you a brief um, thought experiment. Most of the people listening to this will know the story of Osama bin Laden. Came out in the 1990s. We began paying attention to him, but we really didn't pay attention to him until September uh, 11, 2001, when he attacked the United States, Al-Qaeda attacked the United States. Where did he come from? He was born and raised in, in Saudi Arabia. Al-Qaeda itself was born out of his theological upbringing in Saudi Arabia, which was very rigid. It was in main part Wahhabism, which is itself not a terrorist organization, but it is a very narrow interpretation of Islam, which when combined with the rest of his life led him to found Al-Qaeda, which attacked us. Here's the thought experiment. What if Osama bin Laden had been born, I think he was born in the late 60s, early 70s. What if he had been raised in a country with religious freedom, defined as Islam, it's strong in Saudi Arabia, but Saudi Arabia has a, a religious freedom. It allows all forms of Islam to exist, which, which was not the case then, it is not the case today. It allows Christians and Hindus and Buddhists not only to have this interior right, but also to worship publicly, to be citizens in the country. That's what religious freedom means. I have a right to express myself publicly, not just to go to church, but to draw on my religious teachings. Now, there are limits on this. We can come back to that. The point is, if Osama bin Laden and the other people who attacked the United States had been raised in a country with religious freedom, they probably never would have founded Al-Qaeda in the first place. So that is a thought experiment about how religious freedom could help. Now, um, there are other aspects of this. I, you, you asked about getting into the, the um, practical aspects of it, and, and I want to talk about that a little. But let me just tee up a couple of other ways to do this. It isn't about just about religious violence. Uh, to summarize what I just said, you can use religious freedom to undermine religious violence by any religious community. But you can also stabilize countries by making them more able to deal with their deepest differences without violence. So here we're talking about internal violence, not the kind that would be exported like Al-Qaeda was. Um, we might talk about uh, Burma, for example, in a form of Buddhist extremism, or India, for example, which has a terribly virulent form of Hindu extremism. Most people don't even know that such a thing exists, but it does, and there are victims of that. 
But there are also national security interests in the fact that religious freedom can, wait for this now, increase economic development and growth. How is that a national security issue? Because countries that have vigorous economic growth and more jobs tend to have happier citizens, tend to have institutions that are more um, accommodated to their own countries and less likely to be violent, to be hateful, to be angry. It has worked pretty well in this country. So I'll come back to this if you want to talk about it. And there is the, the aspect of political economy and political harmony. These are all national security issues for the United States. Excuse me. <clears throat> We've been spending money for decades in something called the National um, Endowment for Democracy, where we've been trying to implant uh, democracy, not through government action, but seeding democratic institutions way back into the 1980s. Trade unions, how do you form a political party? How do you form women's rights organizations? These are all Democrat. We never did religious freedom until the early 21st century. We should be doing that too. So let me just stop there and, and try to follow up on, on some of your other questions. Well, yeah, thank you so much for all of that, Dr. Barn. You bring up one of the uh, most important things I think to remember about issues of national security that our country faces in reference to your thought experiment that you were discussing in that um, one of the best and most basic ways in which that we can promote national security awareness within our country on a basic level is understanding what causes these threats and how they originate so they can better be combated long-term. Um, kind of thinking of it through that lens, what do you believe to be, A, the biggest issues of national security our nation faces today, and B, the biggest issues of religious freedom that our world faces today and kind of what lies at that intersection? Uh, it's a big question. Let me try not to uh, give too big an answer, but I think one of the, it's very important in my view for the United States to be a strong country. That does not mean a country that is invading others or using its weapons to harm anyone or to threaten anyone. It is, a, it is a, um, a perception, which is, I hope, still widespread in our country, that it's a very dangerous world. I mean, if you look at Ukraine, it's hard to argue that it isn't. Um, there are tyrants in the world with many motivations. There are countries in the world that wish us and others harm. This is not new. It's certainly not new to the 20th or 21st century. It's been going on since human beings existed. And that is because human beings are corruptible. They're corrupted by power. And I would add that our founders understood this, which is why we have so many checks and balances. I think we're the greatest country on earth, not because we're superior human beings. We're human beings, but we've had a system that has not allowed any of us to get too much power and to be corrupted by it. I think that is one of the dangers to our own country. But our international security threats tend to come from countries where either this understanding has broken down or it never existed in the first place. 
So I would say our biggest threats are China, Iran, North Korea, and now Russia. Russia is an example of a state where I would argue that the chance for some kind of stable self-government broke down in part because of the absence of checks and balances and the emergence of this tyrant, uh, Vladimir Putin. Uh, I'll just tick off very quickly and answer the second part of your question. What has religious freedom got to do with any of this? How might it help? North Korea is the toughest of all. It is a totalitarian society in which typically, this is true of every totalitarian society that ever existed. Most of them didn't emerge until the 20th century. So we're talking about the Soviet Union. We're talking about Nazi Germany. We're talking about Pol Pot in Cambodia. Uh, in other totalitarian systems, the first thing a totalitarian has to do is get rid of any religious groups in that society. Why is it? I should have mentioned Mao Zedong in China. The answer to that question is, is very simple because most religions, virtually every religion, with some exceptions, has people in it that have an authority greater than the state. That, by its nature, is a threat to the state and to the authority and the power of the autocrat, the despot. Mao Zedong is the best example of that, but Stalin would be an example. Lenin would be an example. Certainly uh, today, Vladimir Putin is an example. We'll come back to him. Mao Zedong, uh, as most of you will know, was the first ruler of the People's Republic of China. He's responsible for the victory of communism in China in 1949. One of the first things he did by the 1950s was try to destroy religion in the so-called cultural revolution. Tried but failed, not for want of trying, not for want of viciousness, brutality. Uh, <clears throat> you can't rip religion out of the human soul. That's why he failed. Ultimately, his successors have tried different methods. Today, the putative ally of Vladimir Putin in China, President Xi Jinping, I would argue, is an updated version of Mao Zedong. This is very, very dangerous for the United States. This possible alliance between these two, one a communist system, one a post-communist Vladimir Putin, who is uh, it's a little bit less certain how much, how long he will be able to keep power. It's virtually certain that China will. What has religious freedom got to do with all of this? Religion is a threat to both of those systems, which is why in China, Xi Jinping is attempting once again to destroy the Roman Catholic Church, the evangelical churches, the Tibetan Buddhists, the Muslims of Xinjiang province in very different ways. He has literally got concentration camps for the Muslims, for the Catholics and the Buddhists and the Protestants and others. The sinicization is the fancy word for what he's doing of religions. He is simply making them part of the communist party, making them part of the government bureaucracy. Um, this is a we are, we are not doing enough, in my view, the United States to do it, but that is the, con to, to deal with that, that is the connection to religious freedom and American national security in China and in Hong Kong. 
And if I might, I'm not sure how we're doing on time. I know uh, Ukraine is something, should we turn to that now and try to make this, or would you like to cover one other thing before we get to that? Well, that actually sounds like a perfect transition because okay. in the in the same vein that you discussed that, I wanted to ask what role uh, in that way do you think that human rights and the signaling of their value um, should have in the United States' response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine? The first thing is the bad guys, if I can put it that way. Um, Putin has managed to co-op the Russian Orthodox Church, um, whose patriarch, um, most people will, who are listening to this will understand that the Eastern Orthodox churches, which separated from the Catholic Church uh, over a thousand years ago, tend to be associated with countries. So you have the Serbian, I mentioned that Serbian, you have the, the Syrian uh, Cypriot Orthodox Church, the Greek Orthodox Church, uh, and many other Orthodox churches around the world. Most of them are really, really terrific. They have their own, um, they have their own liturgies, they have their own liturgical uh, approaches to Christianity. The Russian Orthodox Church, unfortunately, in my view, and this is not an unusual position, but there is disagreement over this, has allowed itself to be used by Vladimir Putin to justify his attack, his brutality to the people of Ukraine, because of his argument, not only that Ukraine is part of Russia, but that necessarily any part of Russia must be part of the Russian Orthodox Church. And, and in furtherance of this invasion, the Russian Orthodox Patriarch has allowed himself to be used. This is, this is uh, an awful thing for anyone who uh, stands for the Christian faith in any of its versions to do, in my opinion. I believe that our own foreign policy makers are not paying enough attention to this. But let's move to the positive side of this. Ukraine is a country that it's, I think, roughly 44 million people before they started leaving. Uh, 44 million largely pe peaceful people who have had fierce interreligious conflict in much of its history. Um, in the 21st century, it has mainly been a country of variations of Eastern Orthodoxy. Ukrainian Orthodox, uh, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox. The number of uh, Orthodox people in Ukraine, and I should add Catholic, uh, Ukrainian Catholic of various kinds, they number probably 4 million, 10% of the population. I would argue, I would suggest that maybe 70 to 80% of the population of Ukraine is Eastern Orthodox. Only a small number of those are now affiliated with the Russian Orthodox Church. What's my point? This very Christian country has drawn upon its Christian roots to grant religious freedom, or at least move toward religious freedom for everyone in that country, including Muslims, including Jews. Jews have had a tough time in Ukraine over the centuries. They are doing what we want countries to do with religious freedom. It is, has been stabilizing prior to this awful invasion. 
in <clears throat> American interests begin with NATO in Europe. We have treaty obligations, but they don't end with NATO. Ukraine is not a member of NATO. It is in our interest, our national interest, to protect that country if we can, in every way we can. And I hope we're, I pray, I know all of us are, that we're doing everything we can. I hope we don't wake up one day and decide that we should have found a way to get those Russian MiGs into Ukraine. Maybe we'll still do that. I, I fear it's too late. If Ukraine survives, if for whatever reason, the Russians withdraw from all or part of it, the religious freedom that Ukraine has begun to implement in its country before the invasion will be a source of its courage as it is today and its consolidation as a democracy in Eastern Europe. That's in our interest. That's in our national security interest. It's very important for the United States to understand that. And I hope those who are listening to this will understand it. Unfortunately, I started by saying we need to be strong as a nation. I fear we have not been strong in convincing Vladimir Putin that if you uh, invade, um, you're going to pay a big price. We said it. He didn't believe it. Why didn't he believe it? That's a troubling question for all of us. And I'll, I'll stop on that. But religious freedom has something to do with asking and answering that question. I could not agree more, Dr. Farr, and I can't tell you how glad I am that we are closing on that note of kind of a hope for what could be in the future a bastion for the utilization of religious freedom in the defense of a nation and the defense of a nation that has shown incredible courage in the preservation of what hopes to be human rights in the coming stretch. Uh, Dr. Farr, I really can't thank you enough for kind of taking the time to educate us on the importance, not only on this right universally, but the effect that it can have on defense and on the protection, not only of our country, but some of the most vulnerable countries and people across the world. So thank you so much. Pleasure to be with you, Mara. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Um, and kind of with that, I would also like to thank the Notre Dame International Security Center uh, the Students Talk Security podcast, and for all of you for listening. Uh, don't forget to tune in to the next episode and go Irish. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag ND underscore ISC. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under SampleSwap.